Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who take big pieces of wood and make them smaller. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, welcome to Wood Talk number 147 for September 4th, 2013. On today's show, we're talking about machine cut dovetail angles, spoke shaves versus rasps, popping the grain with dye, tips for flawless drawers, integral versus loose tenons, and workbench thickness for holdfasts. But before we get to all that, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Today's show is supported by Festool, helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at festoolusa.com. And by Arbortech, makers of creative wood shaping tools. Have you heard of Arbortech's latest woodworking tool, the Mini Turbo? The Mini Turbo is a revolution in wood sculpting that can be used directly on the Arbortech Mini Grinder or fitted to any angle grinder. The Mini Turbo can be used freehand or with guides and templates. Find out more at arbortechusa.com. All right, so let's go into what's on the bench. And, you know, to be honest, there's not a whole lot. I've been doing uh, live demo prep and just about everything other than building the project that needs to be built right now. So <laughs> procrastinating a little bit. That's always fun. It is. It is actually what it's one of those things where I just there's just not enough time in the day. Um, I mean, having a kid literally took about. 50% of my active work time out of my schedule. <laughs> so there's just, there is physically not enough time in the day for me to do everything I need to do in life. And I guess that's just the way it is. So uh, coming up next though, I'll be working on the breadboard ends and the top, the, the entire lid for this project, which should be pretty fun. So hopefully after we're done recording here, I'll be able to go in and do that and uh, it'll be well on its way. So yeah, uh, uh, cool. talking about the blanket chest, by the way. Um, we have no mat today. We are matless. Yeah, we are we are matless. But let me just say um, a, a lovely, lovely happy birthday to Madison. Yes, Matt's daughter. She's sixteen Sweet today. Sixteen, right? So Matt's going to start losing his hair. It's going to turn completely gray, <laughs> and but he's got a chauffeur now. So there that's you cool. go. Awesome. Well, congratulations and happy birthday to Madison and uh, Shannon. How about you? What's going on? Well, I had. Um, 
interesting experience this past weekend. You know, you come into a, a, a three-day weekend and you're like, sweet, you know, I've got get the shop time and, you know, reality sets in. You realize you've got a family barbecue, you've got errands <laughs> to run. Totally. And suddenly your three-day weekend, I, I'm not kidding, Friday I looked at it and I was like, I don't have anything to do this weekend. I could mm-hmm. literally spend three days in the shop. I got four hours. Yep. <laughs> four hours in the shop. Oh, man. But um, it it was uh it was an interesting four hours because I got very little done in that four hours. But you know I I work with hand tools. Um, I'm a big big proponent of hand tools, I've but I still have a thickness planer. And um, I've made no secret of the fact that yeah, it's good to know how to flatten a board by hand. But you know it's the 21st century. Let's speed things up a little bit. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, I have. This ongoing saga of my DeWalt thickness planer, I have a new Grizzly 20-inch planer that is still coated in Cosmoline and in a packing crate because <laughs> I don't have 220, I don't have a 220 outlet in my shop. And um, I don't know, years and years and years ago, I made this promise to my wife that I would not do electric in the house mm-hmm. other than like, you know, pulling down a light fixture that's already wired and, and wiring in a new light fixture. That's like all I'm allowed to do. Yeah, so play, play it safe. <laughs> it's been pretty much. And, you know, I probably could figure out how to do it. But needless to say, um, I've got an electrician I worked with before. He's kind of booked up for the next couple of weeks. I'm in the middle of a project. It's like, yeah, I want to get out the planer and play with it. But at the same time, it's just it would throw me off, you know, to back to your um, point, Mark. Mm-hmm. It's just you've got stuff that's got to get done, you know. Yeah. And um so the way I figure it is, why not? Why unpack the the planer and take all the cosmoline off and all that stuff? And if I can't even plug it in, you know, then it's just going to sit there taunting me. So <laughs> I've pretty much moved it. It's in my laundry room right now. Long story short, too late. Um, I had some some planning to do. I'm building this uh, treadle lathe entirely out of twelve quarter sapili. So very hard, very heavy, very big timbers. Right. And I was like, you know what? This is silly. Uh, I flattened the face. I flattened an edge and got it square. And I was ready to load it into the planer. And my brand new repaired DeWalt 735 stopped working again. <laughs> um, it, well, I, mean, I should be clear. It works. Yeah. But somehow it's gotten out of alignment. So, that you know, there's the four posts. They're, they're threaded and the little um, cogs run up run up those four posts and it actually raises and lowers the cutter head mm-hmm. um i'm for those that are listening at home i'm gesticulating madly here so i'm illustrating how it works with my hand so just right. imagine imagine this well somehow and this is what happened when i took it in to get repaired before it had jammed because it had gotten out of alignment okay. so it was like two threads ahead on one corner and everything else was in, in line with one another so it was kind of tweaking the whole thing and causing it to bind mm-hmm. Well, it seems to work fine when you're like at one inch thickness or half inch thickness, but when you get up into the four or five inch thicknesses, you know, because a lot of people don't realize you can actually turn a board on its edge and plane the edge. Right. And as long as, I think the rule of thumb is, um, as long as it's not three times higher than it is thick. And I don't even know how accurate that is because I guess if it's too tall, it gets a little wobbly, but you know, why else do they make planers with six and eight inch capacity? You know? Well, and that's what I hear a lot, like uh, folks in Europe who watch us do all of our ripping uh, to get that second parallel edge on the table saw. And they're like, why don't you use the thickness planer for use that? Use the planer. Yeah. And, and I've started using that a lot lately. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I think it was um, Henrik Varyu in one of his um, epic, you know, saga videos that he brought that point up. And I was like, duh, why <laughs> yeah, don't I do this? Totally. So 
something's weird when I get up into those higher elevations in the planer, it gets all screwy and it got so bad that it actually tweaked the base so that it wouldn't sit level wow. on my bench top. Okay. It completely, and I could use some much, much stronger words. It fudged it up really, really badly. <laughs> so at one point I actually had the, one of my posts, like the core pieces to my treadle lathe jammed in the planer and I could not get it out. And I'm like, oh, great. I'm going to have to literally cut this board out of the planer. Yeah, wonderful. So a little bit of um, <clears throat> encouragement with a sledgehammer, and I finally got the board out of there. But um, you know, I got on the phone with DeWalt and immediately reamed them a new one saying, this is ridiculous, guys. Yeah. I've run maybe 20 linear feet through this planer, and it's broken again. So all of this leads up to the point where I finally had to put my money where my mouth is, and um, I spent my four hours – milling boards by hand so <laughs> oh god forbid <laughs> so it's just funny because you know i talk about it all the time and do this and this is how you do it and mill this board by hand but you know the reality is when you're on a deadline um i always mill one face by hand and i usually will mill one edge by hand and square mm -hmm. it may not be the prettiest thing in the world because a lot of times i can run it through the planer on that reference edge and then flip it over and clean it up after that sure, it's sure. just it's how we do things yeah um but it was just, I don't know, it was, it was um, kind of an affirmation. When suddenly that last power tool in my shop doesn't work anymore, I could just keep working. So right. it, was, it was like my little triumph thing, but at the end I was like, damn, <laughs> I'm so far behind now. I can't yeah. get anything done. Yeah, it does so. come at a cost uh, physically and time-wise, uh, depending on how proficient you are with it. But ultimately, I mean, there's a reason why the power tools are there. They are, in, in the vast majority of cases, when it, you're talking about that kind of grunt work, they're faster. They're faster, yeah. you know, no, and, it's, no question. And, and it's not. Well, and it's exhausting. I mean, it, yeah. it truly, and I've, I've hand-plane a lot of boards. You know, I'm not in nearly the shape that I used to be in, but... Um, those little fine muscles that you use for um, handwork, they've gotten pretty well developed. So I can do, I do pretty well. Um, yeah. But it's just, it's, I enjoy mm -hmm. ripping. I don't enjoy milling boards. Right. Um, it's just not that exciting. Um, and I don't know. I, I, if there was any, if there was somebody out there going, yeah, that guy Shannon's a fraud. You know, he only uses hand tools on camera. Well, you're right. <laughs> I generally don't film me using the thickness planer, but uh, this past weekend I didn't have an option and it was cool to be able to just keep working. Yeah. And you know, the guy who says that I would just tell him, shut up, shut up guy. <laughs> come, come to my shop. Yeah. You will find one power tool. Seriously. I can't fake that. Oh man. That's crazy. All right. Well, let's move into what's new. Got a couple of links that were sent in by folks. I think Matt put these in here, so I'll do my best to make some sense of them. Uh, Phil sent us a link to a pipe organ desk. This is wild. I mean, first of all, it's beautiful. I mean, it actually just looks beautiful. The wood that was picked for it, the way the wood is laid out is amazing. I'm going to read a little bit about it. It says, um, the pipe organ desk has been in the works for more than three years, entirely made from solid wood down to the last screw. It features an octave of functional wooden organ pipes. Should you play the correct sequence of notes in tune or tune, uh, a secret compartment opens up. So Ooh, it's like Goonies. Yeah, totally. So when uh, when you push in a drawer on the desk, the air is directed to one of the organ pipes at the front of the desk, sounding a note. Some of the air is also directed into a pneumatic logic board. The logic board within the desk actually keeps track of the notes played, and when it picks up the correct tune, it unlocks a very special secret compartment. So this is totally gadgety, and the the thing is with all the 
like geekiness of it, it's stunningly beautiful at the same yeah. time. It has the nerve to actually look really, really good. Um, a very cool piece. You push in drawers and it plays notes. I mean, how, how you can't get better than that. <laughs> so well, what's what's nuts is aren't these organ pipes made out of wood? Everything is wood. Everything is wood. Yep. This is just this is like big time. <laughs> you know, we talk about ooh, that's a beautiful piece. Nah, this just makes them all look stupid. It's beautiful this- and it's a and, and like a, a work of engineering, but at the same time has to have that musical side to it, so that the notes are the proper notes and it actually sounds good. Um, I would love to see some video of this thing. Pictures, yeah, I want to hear it. Yeah, pictures are not doing this justice. I mean, well, it's beautiful, but for what it's supposed to do, I would I would love to hear it. So very cool stuff. Thanks for that link there, Phil. Uh, we got another one here. Paul sent in a cool video that he made. Uh, he says, there are many ways to document and show the beauty in the process of woodworking. I'd like to show you my take on that. The video is a link. It's about six minutes long, four segments based on different processes involved in making the commissioned coffee table below. And it's a, a Vimeo link. We'll embed that in the show notes. I'll admit that I have not watched it because I I've did. been... I did. <laughs> is it, I, I've it? actually been spending a fair amount of time over in Vimeo. Um, a lot of good stuff just- there, right? Absolutely. Mm. Really high quality. You know, it goes back into, I don't know if it was last episode or whenever, some time ago, sometime in the past, we talked about kind of the <clears throat> cinematography and, and yeah. artistic uh, uh, composition that we're seeing uh, coming out. And maybe that's the direction woodworking is going. And there's a, actually a lot of woodworking videos there. There's also a lot of, I think there's a channel like called Minute Work or something like that, you know, from blacksmiths, lots of craftsman type videos. Sounds good. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I had to do that. (laughs) Well, I think the overwhelming theme here in order to create a, an artistic video, Mm. you need to have really, really bad lighting in your workspace. You also have to have a guy with a beard in most cases. Well, it's just funny because this one in particular, um, and I don't mean to pick on Paul because he's just one of many on Vimeo, you know, he's there, um, he's actually using a, a angle grinder and then he's using a, a Rotex sander actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like the worst possible work light ever, you know, but it's this really cool, dramatic, it like looks he's good, in dark right? shadow and the dust is kind of being backlit. Yeah. And it's like, how can he even see what he's doing right now? Yeah. yeah. And then he's finishing in almost complete darkness. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just for the, the sake of a good video shot. Right. And they pull back and you see like, you know, like shot from off, um, off the set or whatever. And there's like a single incandescent hundred watt light bulb, like <laughs> four inches from his face in complete darkness everywhere else. And it's like, that's artistic. It that is. looks cool. Dude. Meanwhile, <laughs> yeah, he's totally. gouging up his workpiece that he just spent the last 40 hours working on. Yeah. Not the most, not the most realistic conditions. When, when I shot the, the pictures for the book, that's what I had to do. I had to turn the shop lights off and only use the, uh, the photographic light boxes that I had in place. And it makes for fantastic pictures, but it's actually like a really depressing environment to work in. <laughs> Absolutely. Because it's just like, oh, I don't want a dark workshop. This is not good. So I can, I, but I totally understand. It does make for better content uh, just in terms of the visual presentation. That's for sure. I got to tell you, doing the same thing, because I have pretty low ceilings mm-hmm. and big banks of fluorescence. And if I turn them on and being six foot four, you know, I look horrible underneath them. <laughs> and I shine like on your head. Eight inches of space between my head and the light. It just looks <laughs> awful. So I'm usually turning those off, but I got to tell you, interesting joinery results from that lighting situation. Oh, really? You know, if, if you're sawing out a tenon, you've got, you know, three point lighting going on kind mm. of above the tenon and two angles in front of it, and you're sawing on the opposite side of it. 
you cannot see your layout lines <laughs> in, at all. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah, that sounds so like a problem. So needless to say, that was the tenon for the shot. <laughs> right. And then went into the fireplace after that. <laughs> the real tenon. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, let's move on to our poll of the week. I didn't post this one at my site because I'm uh, having some technical problems this morning, but uh, this is from Tom's site at this point. Uh, yeah, Tom Ivino, tomsworkbench.com. He does all of the polls. He asks, what do you think about radial arm saws? And that's something that, uh, you know, they've kind of gone the way of the dodo, as they say. And a lot of folks who have them, though, still love them and will not get rid of them because they have incorporated it into their workflow and they love it. So he asked, uh, what do you think about them? And 38% said that it's a luxury for some data and cross-cutting operations. Uh, 26% said it's a waste of time. A table saw does much nicer work. Uh, 11% said that it's a royal pain in the rear to keep tuned properly. And 13% it's essential, often overlooked multitasking shop tool. And only 11% said that it's so dangerous I wouldn't let my worst enemy use one. <laughs> okay. There you go. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's an interesting tool. I would never buy one, but I know like my advice for people is if you already have one, keep it. But if you don't have one, I think there are other tools or combinations of tools that you probably will want anyway for other things that that will do those jobs, you know, well enough that I don't think you need to pursue a, a radial arms haul. Yeah, I think it's definitely one of those production kind of industrial, very specific use type tools. Yeah. Well, you know, for some reason it's in every single scene shop I've ever worked in any theater I've ever, ever either been to performed in whatever. Mm -hmm. They have a radial arm saw in the scene shop. I don't know why that is. Well, my, uh, my stepdad back in Jersey, he was not really a woodworker, but he would do a lot of construction stuff at the house. And he, it was a big deal when he got his saw and it was a radial arm saw. Now I didn't know anything at the time. To me, that was just a saw. Like it was just a power tool. Um, but it was interestingly enough, not a table saw. Um, I think he had a circular saw, but this radial alarm saw was what he, he saw as the, the tool that he needed as a homeowner to do big DIY projects on the house. So it was just kind of interesting when I look back on it now that I know what I know, uh, why he specifically chose the radial alarm saw. Interesting. So I should ask him about that. What were you thinking? Step, go get him, go get him right now. Stepfather guy. He can be Matt for this show. Oh, that would be good. But then he's going to go into some story. He's going to go into some story about growing up in West Virginia. They used to eat the bark off trees because they didn't have enough food and (laughs) BS stories like that. Uh, All right. So let's get back into the flow here. We got kickback. Got a little bit from Stu. I'll just read these. None of this is hopefully Matt like proofread some of this because I'm just going to read it (laughs) verbatim and we'll end up with another KY and a bullet comment. But uh, hey, that's what happens. Uh, Stu says, in show number 123, you ask for other hardware source options. I've always had really good luck with CSH Custom Service Hardware. They have some of the best prices and variety around. That's CSHHardware.com. I'm going to have to bookmark that. Yeah, never heard of him. Uh, Blair says, it's an old topic, but I meant to email you about rust removal in Wood Talk 144, but I got sidetracked. Uh, One of the emailers recommended a toilet bowl cleaner to remove rust. Like most of those products, the one recommended is a hydrochloric acid solution. I have no doubt that those products will remove rust because all acids are generally good at removing rust. However, hydrochloric acid uh, rust reaction will leave behind chloride ions or chlorine ions that promote the return of rust. So that's kind of interesting. Mm, Good point. Chemistry. Most products made for rust removal are phosphoric acid solutions. Naval jelly is one, but there are lots of others in liquid or gel form. The downside to phosphoric acid products is that they convert the rust into ferric phosphate, which is black. The end result is black spots or stains. 
there are some new safe biodegradable acid remover products, but I've never used them. So in other words, Blair says there's a lot of problems, but I don't have a suggestion for how to circumvent it. <laughs> <laughs> this was um, like an episode of Mr. Wizard. Yeah, it I was. Like that. Well, isn't there something like, you know, if you're using lye, you know, some basic solution and you can kind of uh, deactivate it by using vinegar, you know, and right. kind of uh, add a little bit of acid. I wonder if there's something that you can do, um, you know, a light duty basic solution that you might be able to put on it to help, you know, remove some of the... Um, uh, the uh, acidic nature of what's left on the surface uh, just to kind of neutralize it. I don't know. Just dump it in baking soda. Something know. to think about. Uh, okay. We don't have any, vo- well, we do have a voicemail, but it's a long one. So I haven't been able to, uh, uh, to edit that down. We actually had an email that we were talking about. Someone emailed us and said, you know, the, the voicemail feature is great, but some people kind of just drone on uh, for a long time. And it's like, well, look, I mean, we can't have people script out their calls. It would be great if they did. So th- there's there's a message out to anyone who wants to leave a voicemail. If you write down what you want to say, chances are you'll say it faster than if you just go off the top of your head. So if you want to do that, <laughs> it's not a requirement, but we do like voicemails to be in at under a minute. If it's over a minute, it means I have to actually take the file and edit it to remove the ums and ahs and try to shorten it as much as I can. Um, and, and I, you know, I love doing that. Believe me, I love it. So I'm not going to say anything because I just spent like what, 10 minutes doing what's on the bench. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I've already droned on enough. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we should be, we should be the ones to talk about droning on <laughs> and spending too much time on topic. But anyway, we do appreciate the voicemails. Just try to keep them short. Uh, the fans appreciate it. We appreciate it. It's all good. Okay. Going into email. Got uh, three of them each that we're going to try to blow through here real quick. Uh, First one here is from Mitch. He says, I'm getting ready to dive into a project and I'm planning on machine cutting dovetails for the first time. I've seen a lot of resources online on how to lay out dovetails for hand cutting, but not much in the way of bit selection for machine cutting. Is there a formula or do most woodworkers just choose the bit whose width looks right? Well, here's the thing. Uh, What I find when using jigs is that most of the time the manufacturer has a recommended bit. Uh, or a series of bits that they recommend for a particular thickness of stock and the pattern that you're going for. So a lot of times you're kind of locked into what the jig recommends you do. Uh, you don't want to go too far. You want to keep the same numbers that we keep in mind when hand cutting, like uh, basically hand cutting rule of thumb. And, and I always tend to get these mixed up, but you've got uh, seven degrees and eight degrees, or is it is it the one to seven ratio and a one to eight ratio? I can't remember, but one and six and one and eight. There you go, one and six, one and eight. Thanks, Shannon. Or one and seven. Yeah, or fourteen degrees. Yeah, or so basically twenty-two between, degrees. Yeah, between six and eight in the ratio form, but you know these have degree equivalents. So uh, the bottom line is, uh, it's a little bit different depending on softwood or hardwood. But realistically. Could you use them interchangeably? I mean, you could. It's not oh, like yeah. the, the thing's going to fall apart. It's just uh, some angles are better suited for certain types of wood. So realistically, I would say as long as it works with the jig, go with what looks right. You know, because sometimes if you have too shallow of an angle, they don't look like dovetails anymore. They start to look like box joints. Um, and if you go with <laughs> poorly cut box joints. <laughs> yeah. And if you go with too severe of an angle, then sometimes they, they look a little bit too machine cut. You know, and that's one thing that you always see with uh, a lot of the jig dovetails is they have a pretty severe angle on them and it just doesn't look that good. And I guess that's also because of the pin width um, is usually you're limited in how thin you can go with your pins as well. Uh, But ultimately, I think it really does come down to what looks right, but also reference the manufacturer's instructions to make sure that you're not doing using the wrong bit combination uh, that's going to affect the final fit. So don't the jigs usually come with bits? They do. 
Yeah, and, and typically there is one or two that are sort of recommended as your standard. Uh, you're using half-inch stock. This is the bit that we recommend you use, but you can also use this bit if you want to, and they kind of give you instructions for how to do that. But, dude, every time I use a, um, a dovetail jig, I'm glued to the manual. Like, every time I set up the Lee D4R, I cannot run that thing without reading the manual. I just don't use it enough to like memorize all the details. So, so yeah, keep that manual handy if you're going to be using these uh, jigs until you memorize what you need. Um, but definitely reference the manufacturer's recommendation for that. You know what's interesting is he says, <clears throat> you know, I was looking how to do this and I looked everywhere online and all I could find was how to do it by hand. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Just kind of what's happened specifically in cutting dovetails. Yeah, I mean, you'll find you'll find power tool things for just about every other uh, task out there, but for some reason, dovetails have become. I don't know. Maybe it's because the jigs are so difficult to use. There's a tip: someone who uses and loves a dovetail jig should make a video and put it online because there's people out there looking for it and they're not finding what they're looking for. Well, if they look hard enough, they will find episode 27 of the Wood Whisperer. That's called ah. "When Dovetails Cry," <laughs> because that's awesome. And uh, and I do actually show how I use the Lee D4R to make dovetails, and I go through that process. So it is something that um, you know that. I, I covered a while ago, but you're absolutely right. It, most of the time, what people are seeking out is how to do this by hand because each one of these manufacturers has very specific setup instructions. Like, I guess that's true. You couldn't do a video on it because it wouldn't work for only yeah. the people that have that on, particular absolutely. brand and model. Yeah, you know, if you look at the Omni Jig versus the Lee D4R, the Akita, Rockler's Jig, Festool even has a jig. I mean, all these things have very specific setup processes that make them the sort of proprietary jig that they are. And you have to have that jig for it to be relevant. So what you would need is a series of videos that show you how to do it. And then they quickly become outdated when that company makes the new version Correct. of their dovetail jig. And you're like, well, poop. <laughs> what well, do I do let now? me just say probably because they're never, ever, 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 ever going to sponsor this show. The Rockler dovetail jig is what got me into hand cutting dovetails. Hmm. <laughs> I think so. Just and, yeah. uh, and never say never. You never know. But uh, well, that was my kind of throwing but, down the gauntlet to Rockler. <laughs> but it's the old one, right? Did you use a recent uh, iteration of that jig? I mean, it had to be probably five or six years ago. Okay, that's well. That's newer than the one I used because I had my first dovetail jig was a Rockler dovetail jig, and the only thing that that was good for was propping up my truck tire um, <laughs> when I when I ran over it. Um, but yeah, that was a piece of crap, but I would hope that they've made significant improvements to the system by now looking at it online and it definitely looks very different than the one that I had. So, all right. Well, obviously you're still yeah. gunning for them as a sponsor. Um, I'm gunning for anybody as a sponsor, <laughs> dude. <laughs> yeah, all righty. Let's move on here. Whatever it takes. Um, our good buddy, Tom Buell, uh, wrote Buddy. in, he is working on a music stand right now, a Wart Neshrick music stand. Oh, so, uh, he's got some video or not videos, photographs. Thrown out there online somewhere, um, but it's it's awesome. Tom's work is great. Anyway, he's been shaping the legs for this music stand, and it brought to mind the question: How do you decide between spoke shaves and rasps for this type of work? Assuming you are have you have both and are confident in using them, um, he says, "I love the nice shavings and kind of aural feedback of the spoke shave, but after a considerable time, the shaping is not as finessed as I obtained with rasps." Also, when spoke shave life is good, the finish is close to complete other than minor tracks and such. 
However, if and when you get tear out, it takes a lot of work to bring it back. With rasps, you obviously have to clean up all surfaces. However, it usually goes pretty smoothly. Mm-hmm. So I kind of found this question interesting because um, I'm a huge fan of spoke shaves. And correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, I think you're a pretty big fan of rasps, aren't you? Uh, I do like a, I do like a good spoke shave, but most <laughs> of the time, if I'm looking at like what I'm proficient with, I probably right. will rely on the rasp more than a spoke shave. And I think that's probably where I'm getting that because I've seen you use them a lot mm-hmm. more than anything. Um, you know, spoke shaves are uh, Tom's. Tom's got it right. You know, when when it's going great, it's awesome <laughs> yeah. because it leaves a finished ready surface. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, you are gonna when he talks about um, he's not quite getting it as finessed as he likes with with the the shave. Uh, I think a lot of times that's kind of the slightly faceted look that you get. Um, I am not a fan of these concave shaves. Um, I'm a big fan of just using, you know, the flat bladed shave. Yeah. Uh, a, the, the concave ones are really a pain in the butt to sharpen. Convex is a little bit different, but, um, you know, I, I just don't even use those very often because I'm not making the hollows like that. I've got other tools for that. So you do have to work a little bit more to kind of get rid of that facet. Assuming you want to get rid of those facets, that can actually provide kind of a cool handmade look. But, you know, the rasp will just kind of make a beautiful uniform surface. Um, I, however, have not had, and I don't think I have enough, um, I don't have enough rasps. Uh, I haven't been able to, I've got some really, really coarse ones and I've got a really fine one. Then I've got a couple of files. I can't get the same surface that I can get with a spoke shave. I usually have to go back and and do something else to it. So a lot of times I'll actually do both. If I can't quite get the curve I'm looking for, I'll rasp it, Mm -hmm. you know, into submission. And then I'll go back with a spoke shave and with an extremely light cut, just kind of clean it up and get a finish ready surface. Mm -hmm. If all else fails, I'll grab a piece of 220 grit sandpaper and and refine it there. So, you know, there's a lot more technique that goes into using a spoke shave and where a lot of people have trouble is engaging the blade. There's a slight angle of tilt to a spoke shave in order to get the blade to, to work just right. And if you don't have that balance and the weight right on the tool, it will chatter or lift out of the cut. Um, Plus there's the whole grain direction thing. So, you know, Tom, not to like severely sit on the fence here, but I don't think it's, you can live with either or. Um, it's one of those things, if you're going to do a lot of sculpted work like Eshrick or Maloof or whatever, you need to have both of them in the shop. And you're always going to find a situation when one works better than the other. So. Yeah. And, I, and for me, what I generally do, if I've got a long sweeping piece and there's a lot of room to play with and I could really get some, you know, the, the grain working in my favor and possibly reverse directions if I need to, if there's a grain change up in the curve. Um, I will actually try the spoke shave first because I find it, I don't know, it's, it's a very pleasurable tool to use. It makes shavings. It doesn't make dust. Um, so, so I actually will try that. But when I, as soon as I have like the first sign of trouble, I'm like, okay, screw it. Picking up the rasp. <laughs> Go with um, the rasp. Yeah, but I will try to get as far as I can because again, we're talking like you, you were talking about facets and things from a blade versus, you know, the action of a rasp just allows you to kind of not only push forward, but also wrap around a curved surface. So it, the, right. way, the way it blends surfaces, I find to be much more effective than what I can do with a spoke shave. Yeah. yeah. Um, the last thing I'll say, Tom, you might <clears throat> also with your spoke shave, one tip that I really like is I have the blade set heavier on one side than the other. Mm. So I'm taking a really, really fine cut to the point where the blade tapers back into the body 
on one side. And for me, I always do it on the left side. That's the fine side. On the right side, I'm taking a heavier cut. And that actually I found works really well for blending because you can work on that heavier side. Again, here I am (laughs) gesticulating. Got to remember this is radio. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You work on the heavier side and you can kind of quickly shape that curve and then you just can – you know, flip it over to the left and very easily finesse that with a really, really light cut. It helps to remove some of those facets. So Cool. All right. Next question we have is from Matt. Not that Matt, a different Matt. That'd be fun though. Matt, be. he actually, question. We'll he did it. just email us and said, uh, have fun with the show tonight, guys. <laughs> so we're <laughs> in the middle of recording. Um, okay. So I bought a bottle of Transfast powder because I wanted to use it on some figured maple to make the grain pop. The directions say mix with warm water. I didn't really like the look of it, and when sanding it down, I wasn't sure how far to take it. I felt like I was just sanding away everything that I had just put on. I ended up mixing the powder with alcohol and then mixing with shellac. After sanding, then a coat of general finish, it looked much better. I guess what I'm asking is how strong should the mix of dye be, and how should I sand? I don't want the wood to color the... Wait, I don't want the color or... Having real problems here. (laughs) I don't want the wood, the color, or the dye, just want to pop the grain. By the way, I'm using vintage maple color. All right, Matt, this is um, this is interesting. I think what happens when you're doing, uh, you're trying to pop the grain, just so everyone understands, you've got figured maple. Uh, figured maple has this undulating grain where, depending on you know the striped effect that you actually see, is the grain kind of poking its head out. Think of like waves that are cresting on the ocean, and as they crest, that's actually exposed almost like end grain coming up to the surface. So by nature, it actually is a very cool visual effect just on its own. As you hit it with an oil, you hit it with something like dye, the dye and the materials you put on it tend to absorb deeper into those areas that are more like exposed end grain. And you can use that to your advantage with a dye by putting a dye on the surface, let it absorb deeply, and then sand it back so that the rest of the wood goes back to its natural color, but the deep grain and the, the, the actual end grain pockets are now filled with color. And that really just intensifies the look of this figured wood. So that's what he's trying to do. Now, a lot of it depends on the type of dye you use. And he was mentioning the actual dilution, like how strong should it be. Um, right. You really want a good, strong dye because the goal here is to pack as much color as you can into that grain as fast as you can. And alcohol is not a bad option, certainly, but I actually like to use water because it stays wet a little bit longer, which means I can actually continue to apply multiple coats of the stuff. So that's what I would recommend. Even Either go with a more concentrated solution of dye so that it's more impactful per coat or apply multiple coats. You know, you don't necessarily have to just go with one, put two down and see what happens. As far as the sanding goes, you know, you really don't want to sand it all away, but you do want to sand enough so that most of the background is cleaned up and looks like raw wood. And there's a little bit of a balance there because depending on how deep the the dye sunk in, you may or may not be able to get back to the bare wood without pulling some of that dye out of the grain pockets, you know, so you have to do a walk a little bit of a balance there. But I think deep penetration is probably your best bet. So stronger dye and keep using, I like water personally, alcohol again, still works. You can use it with a shellac mixture if you want to. I even did that in a video at one point, but uh, I really prefer the way the water works instead. Um, So yeah, more concentrated, apply multiple coats, let it absorb deeply and then sand it back. And ultimately, you know, it's like once you start putting finish on it, that's when you start to see the magic of what you've actually done 
Typically yeah. after that sanding, like the surface doesn't, you go, oh, this doesn't actually look that great. But then right. you hit Well, it. I mean, you probably have moved some of that dust into that ingrain as well. Yep. So you're covering up the dye. So, you know, you might want to wipe it down. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> lightly, lightly, because especially if you use water as your solvent, you can actually pull up dye too. Yeah. And generally, you know, dye, once it's dry without a top coat on it, just looks very lackluster to begin with, yeah. you know, so you just need to... Just dirt into your wood, basically. <laughs> exactly. So um, the other thing you might consider is a pre-made dye solution. I've had a lot of luck with uh, General Finishes water-based dye stains. Those are fantastic. Uh, again, it is in a water-based solution. They're very strong and very effective at staining. So you might consider using those. Uh, they do have a binder in there. So just like he made his dye mixture with a little bit of shellac as a binder, these do have like a water-based finish in there um, that will help prevent that. Like if you were to wipe it back with water after it dries, you wouldn't get nearly as much coming right. up off the surface because it's got binder in there. So that's what I would recommend. All right. We had uh, an email from Kenji who says he has built three projects with drawers and none of the drawers work flawlessly. They work somewhat well enough, but stick at different parts of the drawers travel. My next part or my next project, I really want to build my drawers so that they work flawlessly. I build all of my projects out of solid wood and use the AccuRide ball bearing drawer slides. I'm considering building a frame for the drawers first and then building the cabinet around the drawers. I don't know if this will work, uh, will help in getting the drawers to work better. Do you have any suggestions on how to hang drawers so they work flawlessly? Um, and then he just says, do you think it would be better to make the drawer frame out of Baltic birch ply rather than solid maple? Um, <clears throat> I'm a little confused as to what he means by drawer frame. Is he talking about like the, um, the, uh, that goes under the drawer? What's that called? Like a dust frame? <laughs> yes, dust frame. Um, I'm almost thinking he's just talking about the carcass of the cabinet. Yeah, or like the face frame on the, the carcass. Because, I mean, here's the thing. When, when I first started reading this question, I was thinking of, you know, traditional construction, not using ball bearing drawer slides. Yeah, me too. Um, if, and there's nothing wrong with that. I've used ball bearing drawer slides in all of my um, shop drawers and everything. The issue there is the ball bearing slide doesn't, generally require you to build any kind of dust frame. So whether you have plywood or solid wood for your case sides, there's no internal structure to prevent any kind of bowing or warping. So that may be what you're seeing with your drawer, with the your existing drawers that don't work quite flawlessly because that ball bearing, the, the little wheel that runs on that track, the track's probably not perfectly flat and straight anymore. Um, it's been bowed out of shape a little bit. Um, so building a, a dust frame in for interior structure of the cabinet will help. It'll help prevent racking and things like that so that your, the compartment for your drawer should stay square, square, so that you don't get that deformation of the, um, the ball bearing slide. Hmm. Um, using a face frame could probably help a little bit too, but if you're talking like a typical, like a base cabinet that maybe is, you know, 20, 24 inches deep, you're going to see some movement in those, the, those wide sides. And that's where that internal structure, I think, is going to go a long way. So if I'm understanding this right, and up till now he hasn't been using any kind of frame inside, um, then I think you're just you're asking for a little bit of movement there. Mm -hmm. um, plywood, solid wood, whatever. Um, things are going to move around under their own weight uh, with a you know, cabinet top put on on top of them and weight put on top of whatever it is. Yeah. The other thing I'd say is um, if you're going to go to the trouble of building that internal frame, 
you might just ditch the ball bearing slides. Well, part of what doesn't jive in my brain, and maybe it's just my own personal prejudices, the, when I think of a solid maple cabinet and then think of metal slides being used, is something yeah. about that doesn't compute in my brain. So when he's talking about using Baltic birch, if this is the kind of project that you want metal slides or full extension slides, it does seem like it might lend itself better to, to plywood for your carcass right. for the right. sake of stability and for the type of project that this sounds like it is. Um, but yeah, if you're going with solid wood on the sides, yeah, definitely think about using solid wood. Um, the other thing I would say too is in setup, like one of the most important things you can do if you have a series of drawers is to make a bunch of setup, like I wouldn't want to call them templates, but basically, uh, guides that, that dictate the location of each slide. So you can actually physically put the slide on top of this little piece of plywood that you cut to size and then use that for the left side, then use it on the right side. Then you have another one that you set up for the next one up. So these things are, are fixed and, and there's no, you know, you're absolutely guaranteed that they're even on both sides. I mean, that's a right. huge critical part of the process. I usually, usually start with a top drawer and I mean, literally it's a board yeah. set to the, the width, you know, just below that drawer slide. I install the drawer slide on the right and the left and then I cut the board you know, so that it's shorter and it equals the height of the next drawer slide. Oh, there you so go. I'm, I'm yeah. not making multiple boards. I'm just cutting it smaller each time. Yeah, that makes sense. So make sure you get it right because <laughs> once you cut right. the board, you're kind of screwed. But yeah, yeah that's, that's actually, I think that's the only way I know to do it. Yeah, I you mean, know, if you, you're trying to measure and lay in the location of those slides, mm-mm. yeah, I can guarantee you it's not going to work. Well, and all the like edges are rounded over, like nothing is a crisp edge that you could right. line up with a pencil line easily. Maybe the center of the screw holes might be something you could do, but it's so much easier and dummy proof to just like throw a square piece of ply in place, put the slide on top, drive your screws and you're done. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, especially because the screw holes are all kind of slightly counterboard. Mm-hmm. Um, use a Vix bit too, by the way. Yeah, um, isn't that what those are called? You know, the, the uh-huh. ones with the, the little the collar self, on them. Self-centering bit you're talking definitely about. because that will, you know, if your screw is ever so slightly off, and with the um, the counterbore on the slide and the what do you call that underside of a screw head? <laughs> the, um, the the conical part the on the tape, underside the, of a screw head. The taper, right? Taper, sure. Let's, go, let's call called. it that. <laughs> you know, if it's slightly off, all it's going to take is it's just going to shift that drawer slide, you know, a millimeter one direction or another. And that's enough, you yeah. know, to make that, that drawer not work, to use his term, flawlessly. Sure. All right. We got a question here from Dell. It's a quick one. He says, uh, wondering what your opinion was on fixed versus loose tenons. Now, this this is actually could potentially be a very big topic depending on how far we want to delve into it. But I'm going to make it very quick for the interest of time. I don't really care about the difference between <laughs> fixed and loose tenons. Um, not to be little, you know, Dell in any way. Basically, I think in most cases, when you look at joint strength tests, you may see differences between an integral tenon and a loose tenon. But ultimately, I think they're both strong enough for the things that we're going to use them for. And if you find one easier to produce than the other, or, you know, your equipment or your work methods favor uh, integral or loose, one or the other, that's okay. Do what works for you because they're both going to be strong as long as you're sizing everything properly and everything is nice and tight and the joints are, uh, you know, the, the actual loose tenon stock is sized perfectly for that mortise, you're going to be fine. So I say go with what works best for you and don't fret too much about the fact that one is loose and one is, you know, more traditional looking integral tenon. Makes no if difference. It's good to enough me. for David Marks. It's good enough for me. True dat, man. All right. You're up. Uh, let's see. This is from Aaron. 
<clears throat> he says, does a work surface need to be a certain thickness for a hold fast to work properly? For instance, would one work in a single piece of three quarter inch ply? Um, just curious before I invest in some due to my current lack of a proper workbench. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I actually did an experiment on this years and years and years ago when I was starting to build my Rubo workbench and um, tried different thicknesses using Gramercy Holdfasts and Blacksmith made Holdfasts. And the one thing that I determined is there's a lot of mystery <laughs> to Holdfasts. Mm-hmm. The angle, how they're how they're created. Um, as far as I know, Gramercy is the only one that's making mass-produced Holdfasts that I really would kind of hang my hat on. Um, there's a lot of other companies out there that make cast holdfast that will essentially break if you drop them on a concrete floor. Um, I'm probably forgetting somebody, but Gramercy's kind of become the de facto holdfast supplier other than going to, you know, a guy like Peter Ross or, or you know, a blacksmith basically to get them. Now, um, what I suggest, if you are thinking of going with three-quarter inch ply, those hold fast, you're going to have a little bit of trouble um, just because three-quarters is really not that thick and it will deform pretty easily because mm-hmm. um, that's essentially what's happening is the the post is cocking in the hole and it's metal against wood. So it's going to cause some deformation of that hole and with a really thin um, sheet and especially something like ply, which those plies are going to probably – um, might it might even delaminate with that kind of stress on it. Yeah. Um, I think you might want to step away from the traditional holdfast and go with some of the more modern solutions like Veritas that has that, um, you know, the screw down one. It's got a post that goes in and you actually turn the little brass knob and it, it adjusts it. You're not actually whacking it. Um, it is kinking it in place, but it's not, it's a less violent action, in other words. And it's only Plus, like 80 bucks. Yeah, it's only 80 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but honestly, well, I was gonna say Gramercy is really affordable, but if you were to buy a blacksmith Holdfast, mm-hmm. they're not, some of them are more expensive than that. So, oh, really? Yeah. um, yeah, I know Peter Ross is like Rubo ones. Mm-hmm. Actually, I don't even know anymore, but they are very expensive. Um, it's a lot of steel. Um, plus Veritas just came out with a new Holdfast. It's like a quick release type deal. Um, it's got one of those little, cam action levers on top actually i just got an email this morning with from lee valley advertising something else and it was like in the bottom it said check out the new holdfast so you you drop it in the hole and you just flip this cam lever down on top and it kinks it in place Hmm. um i don't see there being an issue with one of those working in a thin piece of ply but as i said what i'm more concerned about in a single sheet of ply is the actual destruction of the plywood itself um, every time you whack that hold fast, it's going to chip a little bit more away from that hole. Yeah. Uh, if you had maybe two inches of plywood stacked together, it would be less likely to do that. But you're still going to chip away that face veneer uh, every time you do it. Mm. Sounds fun. Yeah, doesn't it? <laughs> I actually have a couple of those uh, uh, Lee Valley ones. In a moment of weakness, I picked up two of them. So like 160 bucks later, I had these beautiful... Hold fast, and they are great. I mean, they're they're fantastic tools. If uh, if, yeah. you, if you could well, justify I've, it, I've got one. I've got one, and I like it because there is that when you do actually hit a hold fast with a mallet, it will slightly move your workpiece. Yep. So if you're trying to hold something, you need it to be in a precise location, um, which happens quite a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, like if I, I do this a lot, if I'm actually 
using Holdfast to <clears throat> clamp a fence down to a workpiece, like if I'm cutting a sliding dovetail or whatever, yeah. and my saw is going to ride up against an angled block, I can't afford that block to move because it's square to the piece. So that Veritas thing is really helpful because all you're doing is just cranking the knob and it slowly applies pressure and it won't cause it to shift about. So in a lot right. of ways, those can be um, actually a better tool. They're sure. not as fast and they're expensive, but hey. They look cool. not like you need 12 of them. You know? <laughs> That's true. I, I don't even need two of them. I just use one of them. So Right. Yeah. Go. Sounds good. All right, moving into iTunes reviews. If you want to leave us a review in iTunes, you could just look us up in the store, click on ratings and reviews, and you can ask Matt why his daughter's birthday is more important than Wood Talk number 147. <laughs> I'm so glad you put that in there because that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> we want to know, Matt. Uh, we'd also like to thank Violator, D. Witterdidder, and Canine Tooth Doc. Uh, he must be, so is he a dog dentist? Canine, and it's T, the tooth is uh, the number two, T-H. I'm well, assuming that's tooth. Okay, interesting. So he's a canine dentist. Sorry, I'm still back on DeWitter Ditter. DeWitter Ditter. Uh, yeah, so canine tooth doc says, Mark, Matt, and Shannon, after having lost my grandmother earlier this spring, sorry to hear that, uh, I learned she was known for her passion for woodworking. I had always grown up playing in my dad's basement workshop as a kid. Since my grandmother passed away, I've had a chance to undertake a big project with my dad, building a built-in entertainment center. Now I've caught the bug and have been enjoying the chance to build up my shop and share little projects with my three- and five-year-olds. Uh, my dad lives a, a flight away, and I can thank you guys for being a wonderfully ready, avail, readily available resource that I'll rely on to impart some wisdom so that I can pass it down to my kids. Shout out to Will and Audrey. Uh, thanks, gentlemen. You positively impact people's lives in more ways than you probably think. That's awesome. Very cool. So cool. Thanks for that. How many ways do we negatively impact people's lives? We don't even want to know. Yeah. And yeah, that's a number I'm not interested in. Um, All right. So remember, today's show is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com and ArborTech at ArborTech.com.au. Recurring donations. If you want to help us out that way, you certainly can at WoodTalkShow.com. Just look in the left-hand column and you'll see some links for, uh, you know, dollar, $2 a month, $5 a month, whatever you want to do, or a one-time donation if you want to help out, just like Richard H. did, which we seriously appreciate. Thank you, Richard. And And uh, if you donate, we will say that your dovetail jig works great. (laughs) That's right. It works. (laughs) Every dovetail jig works great. Um, Okay. And if you, I guess you have the contact info then since Matt's not here. Yeah, you know, as much as I miss Matt, it gives me a job at the end of the show when he's not here. So if you have comments, questions, or topic suggestions, there are many, many ways to contact us. Leave a voicemail on Skype. Our username is woodtalkonline. You can call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Or you can email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our Woodtalk Facebook page. If you're looking for the show notes or the downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you can find them at woodtalkshow.com. You know what's amazing? Just having a different voice read that, I guarantee, makes more people hear what you're actually saying. <laughs> well, you know? it helps when it's actually read properly. <laughs> there you go. It's like Hey-o. Matt says it's like every time, you know, and we've done this for how many shows now and I just kind of zone out during that part. But when you're reading it, I'm finding myself following along. I'm like, okay, so that's yeah. the number. Oh, that's it's, the It's email. all those years of performance training, Mark. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> uh, it's just perfect. We should have you sing it next time. That would be good. Ooh, I'll work yeah. that up. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Thanks for downloading the show and we'll catch you next time. See ya. 
podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.